the reminder of your great miraculous work on the cross and the resurrection that gave victory over death. I pray, Lord, that as we hear from you this morning, that you would be drawing hearts towards yourself, that you would do the work that you promised through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again. Like many of you, I'm moved by great songs of the faith, and especially those that articulate the greatness of God and his majesty, his provision for us to have a way of salvation. And those songs that contemplate the great mysteries of God's plan as we marvel at his great love. One such song for me that I dearly love and that moves me is called And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. In this song, the lyrics consider a question that can only be asked by someone who realizes their own wretchedness and smallness in comparison to the holiness and majesty and greatness of God. The first line of the song is, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Each verse then after that contemplates the miracle of the cross, that one who caused the very pain the Savior went through can somehow receive the benefits of the suffering he went through. The song explores the mystery of it all, that even the angels long to look into the mysteries of this salvation. And that comes from something Peter wrote as he was speaking of the prophets who God has sent. In 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 10, Peter wrote, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The song goes on, filled with references to scriptures about Christ and salvation. It speaks of the Christ who left his father's throne, emptied himself, bled and died for a helpless race of men. Verse 4 speaks of the prison our spirits were in before the grace of God, and from the dungeon we were plunged into the light of Christ. So now there is no condemnation, and the believer can boldly approach the throne of grace. Few hymns or songs draw so many parts of Scripture together into such a beautiful declaration of the amazing love of God as and can it be. And in a while, something very different is going to happen here at Oasis Church, for in the midst of the sermon, this preacher is going to lead you in singing this great hymn, for this is a great day of celebration. And I think it's fitting that we rejoice in God's word even as it is being preached. And so we're going to sing it with all our hearts, without instruments, because I just decided to do this last night, and I didn't think that would be nice to the worship team. Um, but I, I'm not quite done with triumphant singing yet this morning, are you? So we're going to do that in a while here, but we're going to, before that, we're going to get into the word a bit. Now, 
As it is the holiday commonly called Easter, and we like to refer to as Resurrection Sunday, I want to acknowledge that there are usually, in most churches on this day, a slightly different crowd than we normally would see. For those who attend here regularly, you have been with me as I've been preaching through Luke's gospel, and we are going to find ourselves there again, and we're just continuing right where we've been all along, and we'll be in Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16 this morning. However, many people here this morning are visitors, and I want to address them more than those of you who are here every week, if that's okay with you. So let us right away, though, let's do away with any pretense, and let's say who is really here this morning. I usually don't like to divide people into categories, but I, I think we should just speak clearly about who's here and why I'm going to preach in the manner that I am this morning. There are regular attenders here. You know who you are, and we know who you are. We know each other. Then there are some of you who are regular attenders at other churches, but because of the holiday, you find yourself traveling and you find yourself in our area this morning. We're very pleased that you've joined us. I've also observed in my several years of preaching that on holidays, you have the reluctant but respectful attenders. Let's be honest. You wouldn't be here except that you want to get along well with and perhaps honor your family by being here. You have someone in your family who is among the faithful and you know they would like you to be here with them this morning, so you made the effort and you came, but you have no plans to come back next week since it will not be a holiday. However, I appreciate that at least out of respect for your grandmother or your father or an uncle or aunt or whoever it is that you're here with, I'm pleased that you've chosen to be here. And it is possible as well that someone is here to please a family member, but not exactly in a cheerful way. It's possible someone here is not at all happy to be here and would rather be somewhere else. That's just my experience in my years of preaching on holidays. And it is those second two categories of folks that I am most interested in addressing this morning. After all, I may not have the opportunity again. And in God's providence, you are here right now. So I trust that he has placed you in a position to hear the truths that are going to be proclaimed today. I will be right up front with you. I am a true believer. I preach because I believe with my whole heart that God's word is true and that the very words of Scripture are from God and when they are preached, the Holy Spirit causes them to have the intended effect on each hearer. I want you to know I'm a true believer because like me, you've probably been in churches before where you weren't quite sure if this guy preaching actually believes what he's saying. I believe it. Now, perhaps someone will hear the gospel this morning and believe or be another step closer to belief. Perhaps someone will harden their heart against the gospel. Whatever happens, everyone here this morning will at least have heard the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, and will then be responsible to believe what you have heard and will be even more without excuse when God's judgment come. Now that we are clear on my purposes, let us examine God's word together. We're going to begin at Luke chapter 4, 
We're going to go back to verse 14 where we wrapped up last week for those that were here. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? This account is near the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. So for those of you that haven't been with us as we've studied Luke together at Oasis Church thus far, Luke has recorded the details leading up to and following the birth of Jesus. Now, some of you holiday attenders will remember this from Christmas time, where Luke 2 is one of the familiar passages. And then Luke tells some things about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. He was the cousin of Jesus and also was, we refer to him as the forerunner who baptized people who wanted to turn from their sinful bad ways and pursue right living. And then we got into sort of a genealogy of Jesus, a list of his relatives basically that led up to him. And then right before our text this morning, we learned about how Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days. This is to show us that Jesus did not sin during his temptations, but also that he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted and yet did not sin. In today's passage, then, we see that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, that is, after he had defeated the temptations he faced, and he began to go around to different villages teaching in synagogues. So then we see that he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. In other words, his boyhood hometown. And as he had already been doing in other places, he went to the synagogue, and he stood up to read. Now, scholarship on synagogues in Jesus' day tells us that it was common practice that men of ability could be asked to read from Scripture, Not every synagogue had identical practices, just as churches today vary in their order of service and the way they function. But generally, a reading would be done from the Pentateuch, that is, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Law or the Law of Moses. And the readings would be done while the reader was standing. And then either the same reader or someone else would give a lesson expounding on this passage while sitting. These readings were sometimes just picked on the spot, and in some synagogues there was a set liturgy or lectionary, which is basically a schedule that says, here's how we're going to make sure we read through lots of different scriptures and not stuck on the same ones all the time. 
Having a set liturgy would be to ensure that over the course of time, various portions of Scripture would be taught. We actually use a lectionary here that we get our morning readings from. So each week here we have, and Kevin read too, and I read too, there's an Old Testament passage, usually a psalm or other poetry passage. There's a reading from the Gospels and there's a reading from the Epistles, which is a fancy way of saying the letters in the New Testament. So usually something from Paul or Peter or John. Some scholars believe that Jesus, uh, his reading was pre-selected. Some believe that the scroll of Isaiah was selected, but Jesus had the freedom to choose a particular passage. Some think that Jesus perhaps arranged ahead of time with the synagogue leaders what he would read and which passage. So we can't be sure exactly since Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly how that worked out, but we do know the portion Jesus read from. And the portion he read from was Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance on our, of our God to comfort all who mourn. Apparently, however, he did not read the line about the vengeance of God. And this was likely to make clear to the people that this prophecy was beginning to be fulfilled immediately, but they should not expect the vengeance or judgment of God just yet. While some of Jesus' followers greatly desired him to bring judgment immediately, they did not yet understand that while his kingdom was present, the completion of his mission would not be immediate, since his followers would be tasked with bringing the good news throughout the world before the end would come. And that task is still underway and going on right at this moment. Jesus finished his reading then and sat down. As I mentioned already, the word of God was honored by the fact that the reader would stand when it was read, and then the teaching would happen as the teacher sat down. Just as I often say, the Word of God is primary. Whatever I may say in trying to explain it is not as important as the words of Scripture. The Scripture is the highest authority we have. So while teachers ought to do their best to explain it well, the Scripture itself is to be revered and obeyed, even over the teacher, unless, of course, the teacher is Jesus himself. In this case, both the reading and the lesson were perfect, because Jesus was indeed God, and his lessons cannot be an error, and his word, whatever he says, is literally scripture. So the congregation in any synagogue Jesus taught in surely had a very blessed experience. You will never receive a perfect exposition of scripture from me. But from Christ, those who listened received perfection. He likely said other things than what Luke recorded, but the important part is in verse 21 when he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I will get back to that actual passage he read in a moment, but for now, let us realize that the people hearing this would have had no mistake about it. Jesus was claiming to be the servant of the servant song passages of Isaiah. He was saying this passage was about him. And initially, 
the people were impressed. In verse 22, it says, All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Notice how quickly things changed. In just two sentences, we see how quickly people's attitudes changed. They spoke well of him, marveled at his words, which were full of the grace of God, and then a moment later, is this not Joseph's son? I wonder what some of the people from my boyhood would say if they knew I was a preacher now. Many people saw me do stupid things and make dumb mistakes. And I could just imagine how some people would say, really, him? Isn't that Daryl and Judy's son? And yet Jesus himself had never made stupid mistakes. He had no bad record for people to look down on him for. But there was something that can be just as dangerous when it comes to people and their relationship with Jesus, and that is being too familiar. You see, these people from this small village knew him since he was toddling around. They watched him grow. They may have even been impressed by his good behavior, but they were too familiar. Be careful that you don't find yourself feeling so familiar with Jesus that you forget he's holy, holy, holy. He's God. He's the Lamb who is the only one worthy to open the scroll. He is the one who is worshipped in heaven. Being too familiar can cause us to forget our proper place in respect to Jesus. Too many people like to focus on Jesus as their buddy or something. And yes, we're adopted into his family. And Jesus is the firstborn of many. He called his closest friends, followers his friends. However, we must not get too familiar with Jesus. He's still holy. And we are not equal to him. Every knee will bow to Jesus. They will not bow to his followers. These neighbors of Joseph and Mary perhaps knew Jesus a little too well. They quickly got over their marveling at him and got to questioning him. And just a little further down, and we will get to that next week, they quickly moved from enjoying listening to him to wanting to kill him. You can read about that later in chapter 4 if you like. Why did they want to kill him? He looked into their hearts. He called them out on their unbelief. And perhaps even worse to some of them, he pointed out that God's favor extends beyond just Israel. And some of them did not want to hear that. They wanted it to be exclusive in God's grace. So now we have briefly summed up the Sabbath day in Nazareth in the synagogue that day. Let us return now to that prophecy that Jesus said was being fulfilled in their hearing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We know already from studying earlier in Luke's gospel that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And this was demonstrated at his baptism when the Holy Spirit visibly descended on him like a dove. We also have seen that while being tempted, Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit who assisted him and ministered to him during that trial. He was anointed to preach or proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now, some people have looked at these passages and they've created an entire theology that says, see, Jesus was all about social justice and equality, and this means he was politically motivated to right the wrongs of societies against oppressed people. Now, to be certain, the entire Bible, not just Jesus, but the entire Bible, speaks much of justice and mercy. We are to help the poor. We are to do what we can to see that justice is done for everyone, regardless of their economic status or skin color or anything else. Jesus did indeed care about people being mistreated, but his main goal was not to transform society politically at that time. His goal was to first bring salvation to those whom God had elected and predestined to salvation, as Scripture teaches. When Jesus comes again, those who are his will enjoy, finally, a world under his perfect rule, perfect justice, perfect righteousness, all those things that our hearts yearn for even now. But for now, he's more concerned about completing his work. We are to do good things for the poor and oppressed and hurting in this world, but the first need of every person is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you have taken a psychology course at some time. Some of you, even on your jobs, might have tried to use some kind of some psychology concepts to help people. And one of the well-known tools that psychologists use is called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Maslow contended that in order for humans to reach what he called self-actualization, that is the desire to become the most one can be, but to get there, people had to work through other fulfillments first. He said that before getting to self-actualization, one must have their physiological needs, their safety needs, their love and belonging, and their esteem helped, and then they would finally work on self-actualization. So the first needs that people have, Maslow said, were physiological, air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, and reproduction. Without those needs met, a person, Maslow said, could not deal with their safety needs, such as personal security, employment, resources, health, and stuff like that. And only after those needs were met can the person work on love and belonging, friendship, intimacy, family, and a sense of connection. And after they got all those needs done, now they could work on their self-esteem recognition, freedom, and finally, self-actualization. Now, I wouldn't say there's nothing to that at all. Certainly, it's hard to think uh, how someone could work on their relationship if all they can think of is where their next meal is coming from. But there's one very huge problem with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It is entirely unbiblical and therefore extremely flawed. And that is because there is one very basic need that every human being needs that Maslow did not include, and that's why it's wrong. Because before all those other needs matter, we need Jesus. We need Jesus because we need a way to reconcile ourselves to God. Since Adam and Eve, every one of us has sinned against God, and this is a huge problem. Not one of us, not even the most mature Christian in the room, whoever that may be, has yet achieved a view of God that properly understands his majesty and his holiness, his perfections, his power, his worthiness. And not one of us completely understands our own fallenness, our own sinfulness, our own depravity. We cannot fully understand that yet, even if we are in Christ, because until he makes all things new, we still are in the flesh, we still battle a sin nature. 
So there's a huge problem of proportion. On the one hand, we don't have a proper view of God. On the other hand, we do not have a proper view of ourselves. But those of us in the faith, I hope, continue to grow in this understanding. And as we do, we realize more and more how utterly depraved and sick we are, and we realize more and more how holy and wonderful God is. On that spectrum, then, we continue to have a greater view of the separation that exists between us and God. When we first understand the separation between us and God, it may seem this small, but when we grow in him, the more we understand the separation between us and God outside of Christ, we realize it is infinite in distance. It is a separation that is impossible for us to overcome. We all have sinned. The Ten Commandments convict every one of us. We have all lied. We've all stolen. We've all coveted. We've all at times used the name of God or Christ in too light a manner. We are all guilty. And even if there were one person who had only one sin in their entire life, and there are no people like that, but if there was someone with only one sin ever, that one sin is enough of an offense against the holy God that the separation between him and us is infinite. No amount of good work on our part will get us any closer to restoring our broken relationship with him. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of sin is death. Death is the proper wages or earnings, according to the scripture, that we deserve because of our sins against this holy God. If you do a good job, you earn more wages. We have all done a very good job of sinning. The wages we have earned is beyond just physical death. It's spiritual death and it's eternal conscious torment and our wages are well earned. The Bible tells us that every sin heaps up God's wrath against us. And if the words of Scripture are enough to frighten us about his eternal wrath, then may I remind you that the words cannot even fully prepare us for the eternity that awaits. Now, for the one who is saved from hell, Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, if it is true that the one who is saved cannot even imagine what God has prepared, it must equally be true that no eye is seen or nor ear heard nor the heart imagined the terrible effects of the wrath of God poured out on those he judges. If we can't imagine the good, we can't imagine the wrath. Considering that eternity is on the line, then Maslow's hierarchy of needs falls far short on a scale of importance the number one need of every human is not food, water, or shelter. The number one need of every human is a mediator who will step between us and God's wrath. And that is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Sadly, many Christians have taken Maslow's hierarchy of needs and made it their ministry model. I've heard Christians well-meaning but still wrong who have said that no one can hear the gospel if they're hungry. And if they don't feel secure, or so forth. Now, before you go and say, Pastor Jason doesn't care about the hungry, that's not at all what I am saying. To the extent that God provides us the ability to help alleviate pain and suffering in the world, we should do it. However, if our attitude is that we cannot present the gospel until all the needs in the pyramid of hierarchy of needs are met, we will never get around to presenting it. Truly, 
The first need is Christ. Water, food, and so forth are crucial to life, but we will all die, and we know not when. Some of us will die hungry, and some of us will die with a full belly, but we will die unless Jesus comes first. And if he does come first before we die, we still have a problem if we have not trusted in him. Hungry people most certainly believe that their greatest need is food, but they would be wrong. Their greatest need is a mediator between them and God, one who can take the wrath of God and turn it from them. And Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. When Jesus announced to the people there at the synagogue that the scripture was being fulfilled and that he was the one who would preach good news to the poor, he was not speaking only of physical poverty. He was speaking of the spiritually poor. When he said he would proclaim liberty to the captives, he was not thinking of freeing all the slaves who had been sold or had sold themselves into slavery. He was speaking of captivity to sin, which all humans are captives of outside of Christ. Same with blindness and oppression. Spiritual blindness is a greater affliction than physical blindness. Jesus took care of both types, by the way. But the most important work he did was not to alleviate physical suffering, although he did much of that. Jesus came to seek and save the spiritually lost. And he is still in the saving business today. That is what Resurrection Sunday is all about. Jesus went to the cross knowing our need. He willingly went. God's wrath then and now was being heaped up on sinners. A time will come when God's patience will run out and his wrath will be poured out on all the ungodly. But when Jesus went to that cross, he took on himself the wrath of God. For those who he saves, when he received the wrath of God, he received it on our behalf. He did this for us. If you want the sacrifice of Christ to count on your behalf, Scripture tells us what we must do. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible says that if we believe in our heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and confess with our mouths that he is Lord, we will be saved. Scripture tells us to turn away from or repent of our sins. This means we willingly change our mind and attitudes to serve God with our lives and leave our sin behind us. But if you are trusting and being saved simply because you repeated a prayer at one time, let me warn you, saying a prayer does not save you. You must disavow yourself of this notion. If you said a prayer years ago at a VBS or a Sunday school or an evangelistic crusade of some some kind, let me tell you something very clearly. Nowhere in Scripture does it say a prayer saves you. Belief saves you. If you went to say a prayer but didn't really believe, but rather you were in your mind purchasing fire insurance, you may be a false convert. If you said a prayer 20 years ago, but your life never changed, I doubt you are saved. True faith is evidenced by a changed life, not a perfect life, but a change should be visible. True repentance means turning from those sins, not only that, but hating your sin and feeling sorrow when you sin and wanting righteousness at all costs. False faith says, I know Jesus had to save me because I said that prayer that one time. No. He's under no obligation. He saves through faith, which is his gift to the believer. 
Yes, even the faith is provided by him, according to Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You must have faith. But if you are not having faith, you need to know you are unable to stir up faith for yourself. Even the faith to believe is a gift, according to the Bible. I can't stir up faith in you. As I worked on this sermon, I had in mind that people may be here who have no faith in Jesus, and I was thinking about how there's no clever argument I could make to cause you to believe. I could pace up and down. I could use all kinds of public speaking strategies, but none of that would cause you to believe. I could have had a piano player playing holy chords while I preached. That would not make you believe either. Faith itself is a gift. It is received through the word of God being preached and the Holy Spirit of God regenerating the heart of stone and making it into a heart of flesh. It happens to be called being born again in John chapter 3, but you cannot make yourself born again any more than a baby can decide to be born. We say that sometimes, don't we? If a baby comes before the due date, we use language like, well, I guess she decided to come early, as though the baby had something to do with it. But that is not at all what happens. The baby had nothing to do with deciding to be born. We cannot be born again just because we decided to be born again. Only God can grant that birth. Only God can make your heart of stone turn into a heart of flesh. Maybe you're thinking then, what should I do? Maybe you're saying, I'm convinced the preacher is right about the wrath of God, but I'm not sure I have faith. Then you must ask him to grant it to you. I can tell you this, if you desire to have faith, and you want to believe, that desire itself is most likely an indication that the Holy Spirit has begun at work in your heart. Do not give up. If you do not feel like you have full faith today, please understand that many believers could not tell you some pinpoint moment where their faith came all at once. Some do have a story like that. That's great. But many people could not tell you a precise moment. Perhaps they grew up in church and they went to Sunday school. They had devotions at home, yet they never really had the faith personally. And then suddenly, one Sunday, there they were in church and they realized they believed the preaching and they realized they believed what they were singing. And sometimes that's how God's grace works itself out in someone's life as well. Many people will say they heard the gospel message many times throughout an entire lifetime and they kept turning away from God and yet he graciously brought them to faith later in life But do not presume that God will do this in every case. Others are given a chance to respond to the good news and do not, and their hearts are hardened. Do not harden your heart. Believe today. Today is the day of salvation. Now, I said that we would rejoice together and sing this great hymn. We're going to do that now, and then I'm going to finish the sermon after that. So Stay seated. Well, you can stand and sing, but then sit down again. Don't leave. Um, So let's stand together. We're going to sing this great hymn. Some of you might know this. Some of you have never heard it before. It's full of great doctrine, so you should like it. And we'll have the screens up there. And I guess I'm leading. It's a career risk right here I'm taking. So we'll see what happens. All right. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who 
him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies, who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh, my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be 
that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Good job. You can be seated. If you would be set free from your sin and put your faith in Jesus, then next time you sing that song, you will truly be able to sing with gusto, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This reminds me of Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and Hopeful are in the dungeon and they're despairing of their lives and they begin to pray and they pray all night and then this is what happened. A little before dawn, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out into this passionate exclamation, what a fool I have been to lie in a stinking dungeon like this when I could just as well walk free. I have a key in my pocket next to my heart called promise that will, I am sure, open any lock in Doubting Castle. That is good news, good brother. Pluck it from your pocket and try it. So Christian pulled the key from his chest pocket and fitted into the lock on the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt released and fit into the lock on the dungeon door. As he turned the key, the bolt released and the door flew open with ease. Christian and Hopeful both fled the dark cell. If you are in bondage to the sin of your life, there is a key to get you out. The key is called promise. And the promise is the blood of Jesus. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. This is great news for all who believe in faith. He's coming again. For some, this is bad news. He will come to judge the living and the dead. His judgment will be terrible for those who have continued in their sin. The wrath of God when it's poured out on earth is so frightening and so painful that people will cry out to the mountains, fall on me, as though underneath the mountains somehow they would be free from God's wrath. Yet the cup of his wrath is poured out forever on those who sin against him. But the good news is that we have one who would be our substitute who took the wrath of God on our behalf on the cross. The same substitute becomes the advocate or the mediator between God and those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus continually makes intercession for those who are is, for those who are is. That means he must constantly appeal on our behalf. He constantly goes before the Father. He continually and eternally turns God's wrath away from us. And if you put faith in Jesus, he will be your advocate your substitute. And if you do put faith in him, proclaiming him to be your Lord and Savior, truly having faith in your heart and turning away from your sinful ways, you can have the assurance that his sacrifice on the cross was effective for your salvation now and forever. And his resurrection that we celebrate today gives hope to the believer because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead comes to live in us to empower us to live the life of service that he has called us to. His resurrection is a signal to us of his power over death and hell, and we are reminded that he will come again. Revelation 22 wraps up this way. The last few sentences of Scripture says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. That's how scripture ends.
the last book. So I'm going to close now. I hope you've heard the message, and I hope you understand the message. More than that, I pray that God's Holy Spirit has spoken to you through the message and drawing you to himself. I'm going to close with the blessing that the Lord gave to Moses to have the priests pray for the people. It's found in Numbers 6, 24 to 26. And I leave you with this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.